Okay, we are reading in the book of Acts, and it was in Acts chapter 9 where we had read last week, and I want to look at the same portion but follow on a few different thoughts this week. And and the, the, the two thoughts that, that I want to try to cover today are, are um, how, can a, how can a man or a woman recover from massive failure in their lives? And, and the thing is that sometimes when, when, when folks are in college, they've really, really blown it in their lives and messed stuff up. But generally it happens a little later. Um, so, so in your life, it might be the the possibility that something could happen, but there's hope. But how can a person recover? And then the other one is, how does the body of Christ receive such a one that has been that has really blown it in their lives? And so we'll look at those two aspects today, and we'll look at both of those in in light of some of the things that Paul. When Paul went through in Acts chapter 9. So you might remember the context that, act, that in Acts 9, Paul comes and he receives the Lord. He was a persecutor of the church. He had attacked the church in many ways. And here the Lord meets him on the road to Damascus. He becomes blind, sends Ananias. Ananias prays for him. He gets healed. He gets baptized. He gets saved. He starts preaching the gospel immediately. And, and uh, uh, there are a few things that, that it says about him. Look in Acts chapter 9, verse 21. And those hearing him continued to be amazed as they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? So you see that, that the reputation that he had was that he was a destroyer of the church. And then we know that, we looked at this last week, that after a period of three years, he had gone off to Arabia, learned some, he had come back to Damascus, and after three years, he proceeded on down to uh, uh, Jerusalem. And in verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So even three years after his conversion, the believers in Jerusalem that had seen the persecution that this man had inflicted upon the church there in Jerusalem, didn't believe that he was really converted. And it was hard for them to deal with him. In verse 27, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem and speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when they learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it continued to increase. So we know from our study of Galatians last week, and we'll turn back back over there this morning. If you turn to Galatians chapter 1, remember it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians chapter 1, 
And, and uh, in verse 13, it says a very similar, similar thing. Galatians 1.13 For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So you, you see that here Paul admits that he was a persecutor of the church. He was as bad as it could be. He was a persecutor of the church. This is how bad it got. And then he talks about the same sort of thing in, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says that, that uh, I want you to know something. And he's talking about his life and he's sharing quite openly. And that's the beautiful thing about Paul is he shared openly about how badly he had blown it in his life. He didn't try to cover this thing up. He was very open. And, and you see when there's an openness with people and they begin to share their heart about their openness of their failures in life. Not that they're dwelling on them, but to say, look at what God has done through me. It actually allows others to relate to them. And so, uh, for example, a couple that has had their own share of marital problems, that, that then is open about that and shares it with other couples, it's a blessing to other couples to hear that. To hear that, oh, you have struggled too, and you got through it. And... I have found that in my marriage, one of the most encouraging things to other married couples is for them to know that Shireen and I have had our struggles together. That we have been to counseling together on several occasions. It blesses them a lot to hear that, oh, you know, we thought you guys were like perfect. And you just always were blissfully holding hands and skipping together through the park. And, and that all your children were skipping after you as well. And it, it really helps them to know that that's not always the case. And so Paul is, is sharing these sorts of things. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, for I am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. So he says, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. And yes, I am an apostle, he says, but I'm the least of the apostles. Because I persecuted the very church that I'm talking about. He says, yeah, other men have blown it in other ways, but I am the worst. Because I was a persecutor of the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, this realization that... I am what I am is really a good realization, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Look, he's brought me out of that, and here I am. And then, let's finish up on that thought of Paul in 1 Timothy. So you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then you've got the three T's. Titus, Timothy, uh, uh, you have Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. So after you get, you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you have the three T's, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. And so it, it, it's not too bad to find all of these things. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, it says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though... I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Look at what he says about himself. 
He says that, that I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. I doubt if many of you feel as if you've really blasphemed the church with your language. He admits that he does. How many of you have been a persecutor of the church where you've like taken people who believe in Jesus and had them bound and beaten? How many of you have, have, have ever done that? Oh, okay. And, and he was a violent aggressor. He was violent against these people who were believers. It says that he would go to Damascus with the express intention he would have men and women dragged out of their homes and thrown into prisons. And you say, well, what happens to the poor children in their homes? There was no social services in those days that would go in as part of the government and take care of these little children. There were just children that saw their parents being dragged off. And imagine the pain that this man had inflicted upon countless lives. And that's what he has to deal with. Children that saw their parents dragged off. And imagine you're just a little child and your parents are dragged out of the home and that's it. And you're wandering the streets hoping that somebody will pick you up and you say, oh, certainly others in the church will pick them up. No, the others in the church were picked up too. And their children were left too. Imagine the pain that this man inflicted upon others and the express others were those who believed in Jesus. He says, I was a violent aggressor Yet I was shown mercy, in verse 13, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What do you mean you acted ignorantly in unbelief? You knew very well it was the church. You knew very well that these people were confessing this, this name Jesus. You knew very well what you were doing. But he acted ignorantly of the knowledge of God at the time. In verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among which I am foremost of all. Now, I've heard pastors stand there and say, well, I would disagree with Paul on this one. I'm really pretty bad. You know, that kind of of false humility is not needed. Paul really says, I am the foremost of sinners. God was demonstrating something to us. He was worse than that pastor that I heard say that. He really was. Paul was the foremost of all sinners. And this is exactly what God does. This is the way God likes to express Himself. He takes the very worst, the very worst, and He makes makes them this sort of example of His grace. That's exactly what he likes to do. That is the way God is. That, that's, that's the way he likes to be. That he takes the very worst and he, he calls them and he says, you know, I'm going to take the very worst and I'm going to do something through them. He says, I am the foremost of all sinners. I'm the very worst. So if you look in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Consider your calling. God has chosen us not because we are the wisest. He says He has, in fact, chosen us because we're the weaker ones. He has chosen the weak things of the world, the shameful things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are. See, look what God's done. He hasn't said, well, I'm going to look across the world and I'm going to find those who are really pretty good. And I'm going to take those and make them into my children and demonstrate something to the world. No, God, God looks specifically for the base things of the world, for the despised, for the people who were really hurting inside and said, I want that person. I want that one. I know what God did with me. You know, I, I tell people, you know, I really wasn't very good in high school. I didn't do very well in school and all of these things. Oh, well, you know, you're just, you're just being humble. That's not the case. And, and, and my, my sister was one of these people that always got the perfect score on the SATs. I mean, perfect. And, and uh, in those days, it was out of 1,600, and she got 1,600 out of 1,600. And she was just this amazing mind. She could have gone into anything, whether it was art or medicine or mathematics. And so any field, she always had straight A's, and she ended up becoming a mathematical physicist. She got offered her first academic position was offered to her with tenure. This, like, never happens. I've never heard of this. That your first academic position, they wanted her so badly, they offered it with tenure. I mean, usually, you, you know, you, you go without tenure. And, you, you know, you work very hard and you try to get tenure. And half the people don't get it. Well, she was offered it with tenure. My brother was one of these guys who never had to work very hard, but he always did very well. And then there was me. And, and uh, um, my mother always thought, what's going to become of this boy because he's not very intelligent? What's going to become of him? And she tells me to this day. And in fact, I'm colorblind. And so I couldn't tell my colors. So she didn't interpret this as if I was colorblind. She just thought the kid can't learn colors. And she thought I was really messed up. And you'd think that, how can that be? You know, times were different. When I was in first grade, I remember my first grade teacher bringing me up to the front of the room. And she took a blue crayon and she wrote on a box. And she took a purple crayon and wrote on the box. And, I, and she said, what colors are these? Can't you tell the difference? And to this day, I can't tell the difference between blue and purple. You see this necktie? I, bu I bought it because I wanted something blue and black. <laughs> and... and then after I put it on the counter, I told Shireen, I want this because it's blue and black. She says, what is, where's the blue? <laughs> to this day, I can't tell the news because my eyes don't pick up the red. So I see the blue. And I got scolded in first grade. And I remember being, you know, the shame in front of the, the classroom as a first grader. And you think that what kind of foolish teacher would do that? That doesn't happen today. They're trained. You don't do this. Some children are colorblind. It turns out like 10% of all males are colorblind. Back then, they didn't think about this sort of thing. If a kid doesn't know their colors, they were treated differently. And, and uh, 
So my mom always wondered, what's going to become of this kid? And I wondered about this myself. But God has a way of taking the weak things of the world and bringing them and confounding the world through these things. Once in a while I'll get emails from people who we were very good friends in junior high school. And somewhere they've seen my name someplace and they email me. They said, what happened to you? When did this change occur? And I'm... And, and so it's a great opportunity to witness. But I'm telling you, those who knew me formerly scratch their head. And if I tell people about this, they say, oh, you're just, you're just, being, you're, you're just you know, being humble. It has nothing to do with humility. I'm just being honest. I know in my own life what God has done. I know the weaknesses within believers. In fact, I was talking with a businessman on Friday. And he says, I know five Christians and all of them have in some way hurt me financially. And they're Christians. He says, and I'm not a Christian, and, and, and they're Christians, and I can't believe this. And I said, well, wait a minute. The reason why you say you can't believe it is because you do acknowledge that there are expectations that you have of Christians, and rightfully so. So you believe that there are things that we, that we proclaim that are, that are worthwhile. When's the last time you went around saying, well, that atheist, he really ripped me off. Well, you, you don't expect anything of the atheist, so you don't recognize it. And then the other thing is, God has chosen the weak things of the world, the base things of the world, so the Christians would do this. doesn't surprise me a bit, because Christians have all sorts of problems, and I'm a case in point. And so this was my discussion with, with the CEO of this company, who he and I were talking on the phone on, on, just on, on Friday. So, Paul says... I am the foremost of sinners. The question then is, how can Paul recover? How can you recover from the place of having had people killed, of having men and women dragged out of homes, of having scores of abandoned children who are wandering the streets and forced into prostitution and forced into begging, and have all that on your conscience... And become an apostle. Don't you see it? Let me give you another example. Maybe this will bring it home to you. You take a man who is a believer, who has fallen into adultery. And he has caused tremendous pain on his wife and his children. And he has left them. And he has gone and, and, and married another woman. And that didn't work out. And that now he starts to realize the magnitude of what he's done. It is so hard for him to recover to a place of useful service to the Lord. Not because the Lord is resisting him, but because of himself. Because he's always beating himself up and saying, what have I done? You know, my life's a mess. I could never be a witness. Do you see what I mean? It is very difficult to recover from a place where you've really blown it and come to a place of service to the Lord. Let me give you another example. I look at David's life, the life of King David in the Bible, and I wonder how he ever could have recovered. King David had everything a man could ever want. He had several wives. Not that a man wants several wives or needs several wives, but he already had several wives. 
He had this huge kingdom. Nobody threatened his kingdom. He had such dominance. He's standing out one day on his rooftop and he sees a woman bathing. He looks down and he sees this woman bathing. And I have seen, off the old city, they have found the original city of Jerusalem. They know where the actual palace of David was and where the tower was where he was standing on. There's the rubble of the tower. They're digging it out right now and I've seen it. So there was this tower. It's on the highest point around. And the whole rest of that old city was lower. And so people say, well, Bathsheba seduced him. She did not seduce David. She was taking a bath. It was the evening. He happened to be able to see over her wall. And we know she didn't seduce him because if she had, God would never have, have had the king come through her. And God spoke of her and referred to her in an analogy as a lamb. Not, as a, not as, a, uh, as a wolf, but as a lamb. She didn't seduce him. You say, well, why didn't she cry out when he was raping her? Because he was the king. Because if you understand the power of a king. And so he looks and he says, wow. What's that woman's name? Who is that? And he's asking this of his men's servants, his men associates. And let me tell you something. When a man is lusting after a woman, another man recognizes it immediately. And you're saying, that's Bathsheba, the son of Uriah, the Hittite. Why did they say Bathsheba, the son of Uriah, the Hittite? Because Uriah, Uriah was one of his faithful mighty men, one of his faithful servants. He says, that is your faithful servant's wife, and you know, you well know that Uriah is out fighting a war for you right now. Risking his life. And that's his wife. And by the way, you well know that Uriah, you, you, you know Uriah's father and Uriah's, uh, uh, you know uh, um, Bathsheba's father. Because as soon as he, he said also, he mentioned Bathsheba's father's name. Why did he do that? Because Bathsheba's grandfather was Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor, who ended up rebelling from him in the end. And it's no wonder why, because of the destruction that he had, David had wrought upon his family. So he says, you know this man, that woman's husband, you know her father, you know her grandfather. David said, bring her to me. I mean, this is pretty bad. And he goes, and he rapes her, and then she, he sends her away, and then she, she sends him a message, I'm pregnant. Why is she saying that? Because she well knows that this has been, this means death for her. Her husband's been at the war. She's now pregnant. She's going to die for no fault of her own. David was a pretty bad guy. And so instead of confessing his sin and leaving it there, he goes and he has her husband killed. And not just him. In order to have him killed, he had to set it up in the army so that not just he ended up dying, but several other soldiers died with him. So now you have a man who's raped a woman. You have an illegitimate child. He kind of wants that woman still, so he has that woman's husband killed and several other men around him. And now he's just smacking his lips. And he goes and he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And God never refers to Bathsheba as his wife. In fact, even after Uriah's death, he refers to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. It wasn't until David repented that he then said, go comfort your wife. David was a pretty bad guy. 
David was confronted with his sin. He was confronted with an analogy of a sin. So the prophet comes to David and tells him a story about a man having a little lamb. A poor man having one little lamb. And how he cared for that lamb. And he says, a rich man. A rich man had, had some visitors to his home. And he didn't want to kill one of his own lambs for the rich visitor. So what he did was he took the lamb from this poor man and had that thing killed. And David was livid. He says, that man deserves to pay fourfold. He deserves to die, but have him pay fourfold. Because that's all the penalty that could be inflicted. And that's when Uriah said, you are the man. You see, a lot of times when you confront a person in their sin, they want to deny it. But when you give them an analogy, you say, here's a story. And then they get all riled up about the story and you say, oh, by the way, you see the analogy to your life? And so as soon as my kids come to me and I start talking with them in analogies, they know what I'm setting up. But a lot of times it's much easier for us to see things when it's not cast upon us initially. And Nathan knew what he was doing. And then Nathan says, you are the man. And David falls in repentance. And David goes and he prays for the child that was born that was sick. And God ends up taking the life of that first child. Then it says he comforts his wife. And he promises his wife. promises Bathsheba that from you, from your womb is going to come the next king because of the this is how I know that Bathsheba didn't seduce him because if she had seduced him never would the promise have been given he realized the destruction he had brought on Bathsheba's life and even though that child Solomon was not his oldest son not even close he said it's going to come from you because of the devastation that I brought in your life But I've looked at David's life after doing all of this, after raping, lying, killing. How could he have recovered to the place where he did? Do you see this? This is not easy for a man to recover from. Most men who can't recover do much less than that and are totally unable to recover. And God demonstrates through that man David in the Old Testament, this is what I'll do through a life who repents and follows me. And you scratch your head and you say, God, he doesn't deserve it. And God says, I know, he doesn't deserve it. And that's why I'm God and not you. And then Paul, in the New Testament, turned to Philippians. Remember, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, and gives us a little hint of what we need to do. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself, myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I forget what lies behind. I've got to forget it and I've got to move on. This is a treasure. This is a treasure right here. Remember this. You have to learn to forget the past that you have had when you have failed the Lord. Now, you say, well... I can't forget it. That's exactly how we are. God says He forgets our sins 
As far as the east is from the west, he separates his, his, our sins from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, he separates. And it says that he forgets our sin. And we want to remind God of our sin. And he's like, what are you talking about? Well, remember what I didn't get? No, I don't remember. However, God allows us to remember. Because if we forgot, we'd become incorrigible. We would become so judgmental if we would forget our past sin. In the sense of not remembering it ever. But what Paul says is, in the sense of letting it go, he says, he says that I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. In the sense of letting it go, it's in the past. It is in the past. And I have to press on. You look at a man who's able to recover, able to blow it and recover. This is an amazing thing. But it is of God and it has always been His plan and He demonstrated it in the Old Testament. He demonstrates it in the New Testament. Paul said, you're looking at the man. Paul said, I am the worst sinner ever. And God said, I want Paul. And I'm going to make him the greatest apostle. Even though Paul viewed himself as the least apostle, Paul's accomplishments was the greatest apostle, by far. And he used him to write the vast majority of the New Testament. There is recovery in Christ. I share this with you because one day you may blow it. Now the other thing is, how does the, how does the body of Christ receive one who has so blown it? How does the body of Christ receive one who has so blown it? Look in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. This is a, a portion that, that I'm memorizing now with my kids. It's an amazing portion. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start reading at verse 43. Matthew 5:43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So, so look at what he says. The Old Testament says, love your neighbor. So what the Jews did is they added to it. So God says, love your neighbor. And so the Jews added the statement to it. Never as in the Bible says, hate your enemy. But the Jews added to it, and hate your enemy. You see what I mean? We do this as Christians too. We put things there that were never there. You go out on the street and you ask how many people, do you think the Bible says God helps those who help themselves? The vast majority of people are going to say, yeah, it says that. The Bible never says that. Never even suggests that. The Bible helps those... The, the, the Scriptures say the Bible... I'm sorry. The Bible says that God helps those that seek Him. Not those that help themselves. Those that help themselves are selfish. So, we have the same practice too. We, we put words in there that, that sound scriptural when they're not. Alright, so... Verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you're to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so he says, I want you to take your enemies and I want you to pray for them. 
You know, I, I met Brother Andrew about a week, two weeks ago. Ever heard of Brother Andrew, this guy who, God smuggler, he smuggled millions of Bibles behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union? Never heard of Brother Andrew? How many people have heard of Brother Andrew? Oh my goodness. We're going to have to get this on the, like the AP reading list so students read this because that's all they ever read is if it's on the AP reading list, right? This, this guy smuggled millions of Bibles into the Soviet Union. He would pack up his little Volkswagen with Bibles and drive right in. And, and he, God would blind the eyes of the guards. I mean, it was amazing. They, they'd have the Bibles right in front of them and they wouldn't even see them because he, he would have this prayer of, of blinding eyes. You have to read this book, God's Smuggler. It's just an amazing book. Well, anyway, he just made a trip to Houston. He lives in Amsterdam. And I met him. And you know what he told me? He has this tremendous ministry now to the Taliban. And they welcome him in. And he goes and he shares with them. He also meets with Hamas. And he meets with them. And then he said to me, Have you prayed for Osama bin Laden today? Prayed that a bomb would fall on his head. <laughs> and God really caught me. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And since then, I've been trying to lift up Osama bin Laden and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad of Iran and praying for these guys. And you say, That's ridiculous. Well, what about Paul? Paul says he is the worst ever. Paul was worse than Osama bin Laden. Paul targeted just Christians only and devastated them. This is the magnitude of what God is calling us to. Tell me what this scripture means if it doesn't mean this. Tell me what it means. Give me your interpretation if it doesn't mean this. You know, I've always put this in smaller context. You know, I, I still remember this. One day I was driving to work and, and I made a ride on red and, and, and uh, some guy was barreling down the road and it made him go slower. And he was so upset with me and he just, just laid on the horn and he gave me this expression with his finger, that, this universally known expression. But the amazing thing about it was, as I looked in my rearview mirror, he was doing it with both hands and yet driving. And it was really this, this, amazing, this amazing thing that he was able to do. And he was so angry. And then God at that moment had reminded me, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So whenever I think of him, I pray for him. I don't know who he was. I mean, it was all over. But I pray for him. Because there's not too many people that I can recall in life that have really cursed me out. So I have to, you know, dig pretty deep. And he's the guy. He, he's the guy who gets all the prayers. You know, there was, a, there was a, a business deal I had going in a company several years ago. And one guy in particular really, really did something that really was not right at all. And he went behind my back and he did many things. And, and, and uh, it ended up causing a lot of problems. And I had shared with him in the past many times before. And at that point I said, I'm not going to have much to do with him. And, you know, so I just went on my life without him. And on a couple of occasions, he tried to call me. 
and I wouldn't return his calls. I said, you know, I'm not... I had dealt with this in my heart. I said, Lord, I forgive him. But I'm not going to... I'm not going to reach out to him. But here he was reaching out to me. He left me a phone message once. He had, saw, he had seen in some announcement that I had won some award, and he left me a message, you know, congratulations on your award. I just wanted to let you know. Well, I didn't realize that he was calling from, a, from a, a, an institution where he had, he had been put in some hospital because he was dying of liver, liver damage from a lifetime of drinking. And uh, uh, anyway, you know, I found out a few months later passed away. And to this day, it bothers me that though I had a legitimate case against him, and though I had forgiven him, very much forgiven him in my heart, here he was, even opening the door, and I never called him back. You know, what does it take for me to forgive a man who has done me wrong? What does it take? How much does Jesus have to say when he says, you know, if you greet those who are good to you, don't tax collectors. He chose the least of the people that he could think of were the tax collectors because these were Jews who knew what you were making and they would take money and they would take some for themselves and give the rest to the Roman government. He said, you know, and then in verse 48, he says, you're to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I thought about this. How do you be perfect? You know, this is some ideal that he's setting us up. No, in the context of forgiving others who have wronged you, he says you're to be perfect. Because this is not something that, you you know, you just slip and you lose your temper. No, God knows that that's going to happen sometimes. You're going to say something you shouldn't have said. You know, this happens. Oh, you're not perfect. Oh, you're going to hell. No. I mean, this is not what he's talking about. It's in the context of you are to forgive where you have plenty of time to think about this, to think about the way people have wronged you. He says, in this, in this area, you are to be perfect. It hurts me, and it will hurt me the rest of my life, and maybe for eternity, that I never return this man's call. Though everybody who knew what happened would agree that what this man had done to me was very wrong. And though I had forgiven him in my heart, here he was. And I wouldn't engage with him. God says, in this area of forgiveness, you're to be perfect. All right, let me, let me just close, close with, 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 with this, this one, this one thing that has some relation to this and, and, uh, Many of you know that I've had a prison ministry in the past. And I was contacted, we're going to be visited by a guy who wants to be a member of this class. He has been a murderer. He has been in multiple relationships. He's hurt many people. And I'd like to welcome him into this class. And I think women, you need to particularly watch out. He's had a rough past with women. But we want to welcome him. And I want you to welcome him because I think God does. And I've shared his name before. His name is David Jessison. 
David, Jesse's son. David, the son of Jesse. Would you welcome David from the Old Testament into your midst? That man was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a conniver. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel, he had an idol in his home. You say, David didn't worship idols. Well, you read the scriptures again, and you will find that David had an idol in his home, and not a little idol up on a shelf. It was a life-size idol. So big that when Saul's men tried to get him, his wife, Michal, put the household idol in the bed, and it fooled the man when she said, there he is in the bed. That's how big the idol was. Would we welcome him in? God says, not only do I welcome David, he is a man after my own heart. And Jesus said, you're to take your enemies and pray for them. You Pray for those who persecute you. And in this way, you will be the son of your Father in heaven, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How do you become a son of the Father in heaven? It says here, you become a son of the Father in heaven if you learn to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And God demonstrates through this man, Paul, how vile and how wicked he was. And here he was brought back in. And he tells the church, I want you to recognize him as an apostle. But Lord, I lost my children because of him, because the time I spent in prison and my wife was in prison. Our children are gone. And Lord said, he's my man. You and I have been through nothing compared to the first, the, the, the first uh, uh, generation church. Nothing. And God took Paul and put him there and said, through him, I'm going to have the New Testament written. Through him, I'm going to proclaim my precepts upon the church. And God said, I have forgiven him. You want to be my son? You want to be my child? You forgive him too. You walk in this. We have an obligation. And in this, God says, it's not a choice. It's not this stuff that I'm working on forgiving him. There is no working on it. You're to be perfect. That came with the contract deal of being a Christian. Because when we say, well, I'm working on forgiving that guy, that in some way couches it in some righteous way. And I'm working on it. I said, no. Do it. It's not a matter of working on it. It's a matter of accepting it. Because this thing, I'm working on it, somehow delays it and puts in righteous terms that which is unrighteous. Puts unforgiveness in a righteous sheath. We need to forgive. So the two lessons we learn is to learn how to walk in victory in spite of blowing it in our lives. Forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. And secondly, learning how to forgive others so that you don't have to share the regret that I share, that I have, of not engaging this man in the last portions of his life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of the scriptures that teach us. And Father, I pray that in the name of Jesus, you would cause these young people to learn to walk in perfection 
when it comes to forgiveness, in perfection. That they would be perfect in forgiveness. And also, Lord, that they would remember back to this message. When they do little things, like blow it with their words and think they've blown their witness, that they would forget what lies behind and press on toward the upward call of of, of God. And Father, in their lives, when they blow it in a major way, that they would reflect back on the life of David and the life of Saul and learn how to walk in victory in spite of all these things, walking in victory. And I commit them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.